Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun. So winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We are joined by Tim Harvey to discuss the glory days of Super Touring. Today we're joined by a touring car superstar who's had a long and successful career in motorsport, both on and off track, for not far off 40 years now. So that gives him plenty of good stories to tell. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and my guest is a driver who took a legendary victory in the wet at Donington Park on Easter weekend, 1993. Not necessarily the one that springs to mind, doesn't get talked about quite so much, but it's it's Tim Harvey. You've definitely been reading my tweets about that meeting, haven't you, saying <laughs> that I was ignored in the, in the uh, overshadowed by Senna. Uh, the only thing we ever had in common was winning on that day but uh yeah no it was a, it was a good day absolutely i'm sure we'll get on to onto that later of course tim harvey uh, a former british touring car champion and now indelibly linked with the bccc as a commentator and you're also racing again uh, racing again at high level now single seaters back to your yes, roots it's the start of my new career um in historic single seaters i i've gone back into classic formula ford i bought the first ever uh, race car I had, which was a Van Diemen RF81, and racing in the classic series um, against such old luminaries as Rick Morris, John Village, 
Adrian Raynard, there's a whole host of guys that used to do it back in the day, which is great fun. Um, and I see this career progressing on to um, classic Formula 3, uh, probably historic Formula 1 as well. It's a whole new career coming along now. That's a very good, uh, very good trajectory. Yeah, getting get into a Formula One car—that would be a, that would be a, a, <laughs> if a I very could good get one. in it. <laughs> well, that's always a challenge. Well, did, did you not have a chance to drive a Formula One car? Yeah, that is a story. Yeah, back when I in the Renault touring car days, um, ninety three, ninety four, uh, myself and Alan Menu were offered a, a day's testing, and it was a proper day's testing in those uh, in the Williams Renault F one car as a PR story. The, the Renault engine, obviously, common to the cars. Um, and I went down to the old Williams factory in Didcot uh, before they moved to Grove, um, only to find that it was a very small cockpit. If you remember in those days, the steering wheel was tucked right underneath. It was a real small cockpit. And um, I sort of I said to them, I hope you put the smallest seat in. They said, we have put the smallest seat in. I was only actually 80, 85 kilos in those days, but still sort of quite thick set. And I sort of jumped in and got wedged around my sort of upper arm. So I said, right, take that out and put a bit of foam in. So we took the seat out, put a bit of foam in. Uh, I got a little bit further in, but still not far enough. So I said, right, take everything out. I'll just sit on the tub floor because, you know, who would give up a chance to drive a car like that? You just wouldn't. So with absolutely nothing in, I was still wedged with my knees and my feet and my shoulders. And there was absolutely no way I was going to be able to drive this car. And, And I have to say... It's probably that and actually not getting a BMW factory contract at the end of 92 when they pulled out of BTCC. My two biggest disappointments in motorsport because for a driver to drive a current day F1 car is always the ultimate. Um, You know, you can go back and drive a historic F1 car, but it's not the ultimate car of the sport today is it you know if if anyone was offered a chance to drive lewis's current day car it would be amazing wouldn't it even when we do our mclaren autosport um award winner test in an f1 car it's an older f1 car as good as it is it's still not today's car the current car so missing that opportunity was a, a massive disappointment he didn't get the chance to show up Alan Menu, who obviously got he, he yeah. got good feedback. His neck didn't last very long, but of he, course he was it, supposedly yeah, quite good. He, he slipped in the car, no problem at all. The little Swiss cheese, no problem. And uh, he had a day's testing, and it went pretty well. In fact, they gave him a few more runs in the car subsequently um, to sort of just do some uh, development stuff. But uh, yeah, I was I was very envious, and 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 it didn't. The annoying thing about it was. For Alan, it didn't seem to bother him. It wasn't. It wasn't actually as big a deal as I, it would have been if I'd got the opportunity. It was almost like, yeah, you know, I deserve this, and I drive the car, you know, no problem, um, you know. But that's Alan. He's too laid back. <laughs> well, good to have some impressions going on. We're also joined by Kevin Turner. Obviously, you know Tim uh, well. You've covered BTCC in the past for for Autosport. Obviously, now Autosport mag editor and. Uh, yeah, haven't you got a little bit of trouble about some things we've we've written about Tim in the past, or not written, or ranked, shall we say? Are you responsible for this? I'm not sure whether I should really take responsibility for that. There was a panel of experts put together last year to celebrate 60 years of the British Touring Car Championship, and um, one of the tasks was, to, I think, to pick a top five British Touring Car drivers. I have to say, some of the experts took it more seriously than others. Some of the lists were pretty interesting. Um, uh, but the actual final list of 25 I thought was fairly sensible with a couple of notable exceptions I don't know whether we should name and should we name the people that shouldn't have been in it I think uh, if you were asked to name the top five drivers all time then most serious observers would come up with 
probably a maximum of maybe 10 names. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the top five are probably going to be in within 10 names. Um, so if you're going for 25, you're going to end up with a, quite a few, what I'd say, possible questionable ones or random the, I ones. mean, the trouble is, um, well, you'll know this, Tim, race and dry, it's very difficult to get a list of five other names yes. that, that isn't them. Yes. I mean, they were one of the only rule we had was you can't put yourself in the list. Yes. And there were two drivers that still managed to put themselves in. Um, <laughs> so they, And they so they struggled to come up with five yeah. other drivers they were prepared to say nice yeah. things about. So to ask them for a list of 10, although yeah. from a data point was of view... Was John Cleland one of them? Please tell uh, me it was. Oh, I don't think it was actually. Wasn't it? I don't oh, think okay. it was one of them. Okay. No, no. But yeah, so the, the, I matured. think, you know, in all, in all seriousness, if, uh, Tim should have been in the 25, but, it, you know, he wasn't. You're only saying that because I've bothered to come down towards no, no, HQ no. to do well, this. Well, no, I'm going to put my do... neck. The, you know, Roberto Rivali and John Chicotto should not have been in the list, should no. they? As, if you're doing greatest touring car drivers in yeah. any category, yeah. but then BTCC they would be in the debate. Drivers? But specifically BTCC, yeah. I think that's a bit of a nonsense. Well, the irony is Tim did come out much better in the... We we also had a poll on the best super touring drivers. I think you were twenty second in. Oh. And that's super touring drivers <laughs> yeah, through, was, in, 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 across everything. We did oh, a super okay. touring oh, special okay. in two thousand thirteen, which was great okay. fun to put together. It's really yeah. really mega thing. And and yeah, you were twenty. That was a similar. I think that was only drivers. I think we only asked okay. drivers on that one. And yeah, so twenty second in the world in super touring drivers, but not in that. T- but but <laughs> but not even in the top twenty five of PTC drivers. Well, there you go. You yeah, see. that just tells Damn you about Frank statistics and Jim and Clark and. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, mean, I think ultimately, uh, very successful British touring car drivers. So wherever you should be ranked, certainly yeah. uh, one of one of the greats, one of the the famous names. And I guess it's it's strange, really, that you are indelibly linked with the BTCC. Lots of success as a driver still linked today. I guess it's been the most sort of important thing in motorsport yeah. in your life, which is strange considering how you kind of ended up there. Yeah. And it, it, it was almost a, a sort of second cho- a choice, yeah, a, a force of necessity. So. Very much so. I mean, I you know we won't. We, you know the the reason I came into BTCC in 1987 is because I've broken both my ankles in Formula Ford at the start, very first meeting of the year, um, British Championship Formula Ford race in '86 um, at Silverstone, and it took me basically a year to recuperate. But I had very little movement in my ankles. My sponsor at the time, which was Istel, which was linked to Austin Rover, who'd supported me in MG Metros before that. Um, I had to retain a, a, an Austin Rover link uh, for them and it was suggested that I could do touring cars because I could use my legs a little bit more than articulating my ankles in a single seater. So that's how I ended up in a Rover Vitesse in the BTCC in 87 and I remember sitting on the grid and the commentator saying and there's Tim Harvey the youngest driver on the grid you know so I got in at an early age. And, and successful very quickly as well because even though the, the the outright pace of the car wasn't so so quick in race conditions you could you could fight couldn't you yeah absolutely i mean i absolutely loved that car it was the ex andy rouse 84 championship winning car um uh, we we stuck a twr engine in it and there's a little story behind that because uh, uh, which i'll come back to at the end but basically yeah that was that was the start of it and it was successful straight away but just to sort of come back to what you said in the beginning if you think that my first race in touring cars was 1987 I was either driving in or involved in up until the end of 2002 uh, BTCC races. And since then, I've commentated on every single race. So there ha- I've probably driven in or commentated on every single race from 1987 
to 2019, which is a lot of races. Yeah, the men in white coats are coming to take yeah. you away shortly. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's worth. I think it's worth saying that was a real changing of the guard moment in '87 as well, wasn't it? Because the Rover was right at the end of its development. Yeah. I think you were the last person to win a outright British Tour yeah. race, and you won Class A that year. I think. Yeah, one Class but A, lost out on the overall championship because we were in the era yeah. of. You know, 1600 cc's of yeah, class racing. I think well, Chris Hodgetts would have won it that year in the Toyota, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, but also that year, it was the year, towards the end, you got the, the BMW M3 E30 yeah. came Coming in. Coming in. And of course, the RS500, which yeah. pretty much from the moment it came in, made everything yeah. else obsolete. Yeah. Um, so Just was, going back to that story that I was going to tell you about the Rover engine, We the car had an Andy Rouse engine in it, but obviously Andy wasn't building those engines. He was onto the Mercure and um, what was to be the RS500 program by that stage. The end, We blew the engine up, actually, and I and so I went down to TWR because they'd finished their Bastos ECCC Rover program and everything was for sale. So I went down to buy an engine off them when they were uh, based in Kidlington at the old Benetton factory. And I went in, I saw Alan Scott, the engine man, and there were all these Rover V8 engines lined up on on pallets wrapped in uh, cellophane, fully dressed engines, alternators, everything on them, all um, exhaust headers, everything all ready to go. And I said, well, you know, I'd like to buy an engine. And he said, yeah, no problem which one do you want sort of thing and i said well have you got any dyno sheets for any of them you know just to make a choice basically and he just laughed and he said no what i meant was what size engine do you want <laughs> and bearing in mind they were supposed to all be three and a half liter and he then proceeded to offer me three and a half liter 3.8 four liter and 4.2 and being a young pup that i was i was petrified of ever being caught doing anything so i just took a three and a half liter and went away with it and that was the, car, the engine we ran in the car yeah, it was pretty successful, wasn't it? So I think yeah. you probably made the right, uh, the right yeah, call. Definitely, moment, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, I had visions of of Dave Brody or Andy Rouse or somebody protesting me if I did well and stripping the engine or something. But yeah, I absolutely loved that car. It, it gave me a really good grounding in touring cars and Group A. And it was, I'm glad I was in at the end of that era. And of course, I guess BTCC hadn't yet exploded at that point. So... There's no way you could have foreseen what was what no. was going to happen. So it was kind of a a short term thing, I guess. You thought do this for a few years and then Yeah, I mean I think I think commercially I realised very quickly that, you know, it suited my sponsors. Um, you know, it was still a British championship. It had an incredible history and an incredible following. Um, and of course, you know, very quickly we we're into the Cosworths and then all of a sudden we we're into a golden era, a little bit of, of touring cars. People were blown away by those cars. We had group A racing all around the world, ETC. It was, it was a, you know, it was a good time. I hadn't, I didn't foresee the super touring era. I'll be absolutely honest, but very quickly I was very comfortable in my environment. Um, but I was actually still doing Group C at the same time. I did the British Sports Car Championship in 88 and 89 and won that, which was a Group C championship. And that led into doing Group C with Spice in the World Championship. So that, and, and if I'm honest, that's the direction I wanted to go in. I wanted to be a, a sports car driver. Um, but of course, the whole rules in, in sports car racing went Pete Tong and, you know, we brought, they had the three and a half litre formula and then that died. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to stay in it, but I was able to stay in in um, in touring cars. Well, one championship was going up and the other one, unfortunately, yeah. was about to go 
yeah. go bang, wasn't it? So it was kind of good and bad timing, depending yeah. on your point of view, really. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, I always thought, you know, my my background is that drivers always had to be versatile. You know, I always admired the fact that drivers would jump in different cars, whether it's back to Jim Clark in a Lotus Cortina or an F2 car, an F1 or whatever it might be. I like the fact that drivers were versatile and I like to consider that I was versatile. And, you know, driving a Group C car, especially something like a Group C1 car, which back in the day was a uh, three and a half litre full house F1 engine, 750 kilos, full ground effect Venturis underneath the car and was lapping in sort of three seconds off a midfield F1 time of the day. They were unbelievable cars. They were mega cars. But then to jump in an RS500 or something and, and drive that, you know, very, very different cars. Did you find one harder than the other or is it just different because a lot of people jumping into an aero car for the first time struggle to believe that it will stick sort of thing no i didn't i I didn't have a problem i think because i'd done two years in a group c2 car effectively which was what the british gt championship was so the first year we ran a tiger with a rover engine again linked the which was the 6r4 engine um built by sam nelson and we won the championship with that and then i went into a a group c2 spice with a 3.9 dfl in it so i would i'd already had a lot of group c experience before you know, I was in the, in the World Sports Car. I'd done Le Mans already a couple of times. So I was quite comfortable with aero cars. Um, I mean, in fact, I did a the one my one-off single-seater return was that uh, uh, Formula 3000 race at Donington that I did. And, I, and everyone was telling me, oh, your neck will go and all the rest of it. In fact, actually, compared to the Group C1 car, it was almost a doddle. Um, but, but going back, what you were saying, I mean, I, I knew in a Group C1 car, that was my limit of, uh, if you like, mental capacity because the car, although I could get up to the car's speed after a little bit of testing, I knew that relatively speaking, the ground and everything coming up at me at the speed that car was capable of going on was my limit. And that was what gave me an understanding of everybody's mental ability as the cars get faster and faster. We always talk about the the greats, the Senners and the and the Schumachers having that ability that everything was all coming in slow motion to them because they their mental processing ability was better than anyone else's where the car was almost in front of them and taking them for a drive. But I reached that point in Group C1 and I knew that, you know, if you put me in a faster car, I might have gone faster, but the car would have been taking me for a ride. That's really interesting as well because it, it goes away. I was speaking to Steve Soper, who's a former teammate of yours, and he when he was driving the LMR V12 BMW, which yeah. is a, yeah, obviously a high-end sports yeah. car, and he said he, he was fine with it. He said he could match anyone in the car except for JJ Leto. Yeah. Um, and then almost over one winter, he suddenly wasn't head of the car anymore. Yeah. He was like, just, it just went just like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it, I found that it would take me, uh, you know, like half a day a day to get back up to 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 being with the car. You know, if you'd had the winter off and your life had been going around at a normal pace, it took you some time to get back up to it. I could do it, but I guess had the limits been stretched any further, and also I was doing it at a relatively young age, I think it gets harder the older you get, for sure, um, then, you know, it, it, you do reach your limit. It's a bit like having a, a laptop computer, you know, that we originally had Amstrads and they worked at a certain processing speed. And now we have things that work at a much higher speed. And that is the difference internally in the chip that every driver has. So how did you find the the transition? Because you're racing, you know, Sierras, 
in sports cars, and then suddenly in '91, you're in a BMW M3. It was, you know, that that was a Super Tourer, but that was very much a production yeah. racer at that stage. Much much less power. Yeah, some great racing, but that's that's what we we. To be you, honest, I didn't like it. You know, it was. Well, I don't know if anyone would have you know, really liked I mean, it. That the, you know, to me, those E30 M3s were born out of DTM, originally 2.3 litre cars, or latterly 2.5 litre cars. They were absolutely fantastic bits of kit, you know, wonderful cars. Then we had this strangled two litre engine in our BTCC car. Um, you know, it was definitely slower than the car, a lot slower than the cars. I know everyone else had the same. Um, but to me, it, it was, and the chassis was great. You know, the chassis was great, and the driving was great, and the racing was great. But yeah, having driven some seriously fast, cool, powerful cars in prior to that, I actually found it pretty tame. Yeah, we we were having this debate uh, when we were putting the the sixtieth BTCC thing together. We had a bit of a debate. And we, uh, with Matt James, obviously, uh, he's been on the BTCC yeah. almost as long as you've yeah. been, not quite. And um, we sort of thought, well, the, the, if you were picking the greatest touring car, yeah. you would probably pick the RS500, flame spitting, tyre yeah. smoking, 500 plus brake horsepower, spectacular. Yeah. But if you were to pick the best era, you, you struggle not to give it to the two litre super touring era because of the quality of the drives and the quality of the racing yes. and all the rest of it. So, uh, I think you said before, driving mm. the car around on its own, not as exciting. Yeah. But when you're, you know, bootly to bootly to door handle to door handle with another 15, yeah. 20 pros, it's a different kettle uh, of fish. And when isn't I it? say it was tame, I'm only talking about, you know, 1991. By 1995, we had some serious bits of kit because the, pro- the progress of development was so fast, you know, from those early days where basically you look at those 91 cars and we were sticking a two litre engine in a a group a car really we weren't building pucker um super touring cars until sort of 93 94 95 you know low slung or the, the wheels right up in the arches the weight all down the engine low down and back we weren't building those kind of things to start with but by at, by you know the mid 90s yeah those cars were absolutely fantastic to drive they were technically fantastic you know the, the diffs in them were, were amazing um the the center of gravity was low the aero had increased the power had, had definitely increased in the cars and as you say in the mid 90s we had nine factory teams i know we say this all the time but nine fully paid up factory teams and that and by that i mean the manufacturer writing out virtually a blank check to a team to run it not just giving a bit of manufacturer assistance these were works teams with drivers with contracts with the manufacturer and there were 18 drivers on the grid all with contracts with the manufacturers and they were international drivers and you know not one of them was being paid less than 100 grand say so that as an era is unprecedented you know it really really is oh yeah i don't think that i mean it, well it, it couldn't it couldn't last could it that was part of the problem i guess but i mean but i do have one question for you actually in hindsight because yeah. this came up again yeah. the alpha 155 in yeah. 94 that, that brought in aero effectively yeah. was it a mistake to allow that to allow the aero development to really take off because it made the racing harder made it expensive or do you think it was just it was always going to happen i think i think it's always going to happen i think it was fine you know people get confused a little bit about aero you talk about aero and everybody goes oh it's this holy grail of performance and it costs a fortune and blah 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 well yes it does in formula one where you know arguably 80 90 percent of the car's performance 
is aero dictated yeah um maybe not so much now with different powertrains but when the powertrains are largely equal for f1 is all about aero a touring car just isn't you know it, we're talking 15 percent maybe uh, of performance coming from aero even in super touring days so the differences between the cars was maybe five percent in aero so there's the far more development a, a touring car gains far more from damper development than it does from uh, from aero. A Formula One car gains far more from aero than it does from damper development. It's a different beast. But So aero didn't kill super touring um, because everybody had a bit of it and it was a small amount of difference. And it wasn't really, nobody was spending fortunes in wind tunnels. A little bit, yes, some of it. And it was the homologation stage. You know, it was buy your alpha with a spoiler in the boot type thing. I th I personally think it was fine. It made the cars look good. It made them go well. And yeah, I, I don't have, I don't, I certainly don't blame Aero for the costs or the um, killing the racing. So what what would you blame the end of Super Touring on? Would you just say it was an inevitability was of manufacturers getting involved yeah. and wanting to win? So they're always going to spend money on something, whether it's dampers or engines or whatever. No, I'll tell you what it was. It was greed of the teams. It was pure greed of the teams because motorsport can cut its cloth. You know, you and I could go racing with a uh, a Formula Ford car on the back of a trailer and do it ourselves, or we could employ a team to run a Formula Ford car, or we could employ a team with engineers, mechanics, a hospitality suite, and dancing girls and and rubber plants. You know, you you can this it can cut its cloth, and the problem with Super Touring was that the teams would blackmail the manufacturer by saying, "Well, X is spending." three million if you want to be competitive you've got to spend three million or they're spending five million or six million or whatever it is and no marketing director within a, a, a manufacturer or a sponsor whatever you want to call it is going to have that on his head that he didn't agree to spend the same as the people that were winning when you then don't win so he would agree to it or they would agree to it as a manufacturer but in doing so they were almost writing themselves a contract that said we'll spend the money but we have to win now the moment you you have everybody else doing that by the nature of racing only one person can win and when the others don't they then pull out so if the teams had kept it at a a value for money uh the the cost of doing it warranted being involved and if you won it was a bonus which is what it should always be um which is what btcc is now effectively um it then you know, maybe they could have kept budgets at, I don't know, two million, three million and had more longevity to it. Uh, looking though, did it take you a little bit of time to adapt to to those cars? I know I know you <laughs> want you won the second season of that, so clearly not that long, but I, I mean I'll, I'll how much honest, do you have to reprogram I'll yourself? I'll be honest, Ed, I grew up driving rear wheel drive cars. You know, I, I always drove rear wheel drive cars. Uh, my first proper road car was a a Mark One Escort RS2000. I thought I was Harry Vattenen around the lanes of Kent. Um, you know, I grew up, and then I was in Formula Ford. Everything I drove was was rear wheel drive. Yes, I I got into touring cars or got, went through the MG Metro Challenge, which was, if you like, the Clio Cup of its day, which was front wheel drive. But uh, and most of my career, certainly in super touring, was all in front wheel drive. Now, I don't. I didn't particularly like front-wheel drive, but as a professional driver, you adapt your technique and and you find a way of doing it. And yes, as you say, I was reasonably successful. But 
I never really liked front-wheel drive. Um, I could never admit it in the day. If you even hinted that you were any better or worse at one or the other, it was professional suicide, wasn't it? And, you know, we've sort of seen this with Jason over the last few years where he will not accept that, you know, he may or may not be better in front or rear-wheel drive. Um, and he can't because it's it's his profession, and I understand that. But I can tell you that every driver feels slightly more comfortable with one or the other. So that was my biggest dif difficulty was adapting, really, the, the ultimate front-wheel drive technique. Well, proper racing cars are rear-wheel drive, aren't they? Thank you. <laughs> I mean, they are. I've actually, again, on, 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 on Soper, because he did yeah. the front-wheel drive stuff. Yeah. And he said he had all sorts, because when he came in, he came in in a Rover as well, but just yeah. a few years before you. Yeah. And he had all these people saying, oh, you're, you know, this guy, you're going to get found out in rear-wheel drive. And I couldn't believe how easy it was to drive the Rover. It was so yeah. much easier. Yeah. So he immediately preferred yeah. rear-wheel drive as well, I think. Yeah, it is. It's a natural balance. You know, you have a natural balance of your control input, steering, braking, accelerating, to control the balance and attitude of the car you don't have that as much in a front wheel drive car you have an ability to influence it but ultimately the rear wheels are just rolling around freewheeling aren't they so there's only so much you can do when you look at the the your time in touring cars is is 92 the highlight obviously it is in terms of results you won the title for an, an yeah. bmw but is that the one that gave you the most satisfaction actually being able to say yeah i'm the best um, i win you know, I, I I actually never considered myself the best touring car driver. I, I twenty six best. I, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I considered that I made the most of my ability and my opportunity, which is what it's all about. Um, you know, I never had. I sort of I've always admired the drivers who had that absolute blind faith, arrogance, confidence, whatever you want to call it, that they were the best. Um, I never had that. What I did have was something else, which was a will to win, which is a different thing. It's a it's born out of competitiveness so that I, I would sit there on the grid and I would really want to win, desperately want to win. And, and that went right through up into Porsche Carrera Cup days, you know, right through to sort of 2010. And I'd watch all these youngsters doing their stretching exercises and listening to their music and getting prepared for the race. And they were half my age and half my weight. And I would get put my helmet on after having run down from the commentary box doing touring cars. But when I put my helmet on and I sat in that car and I sat on the grid, I knew I wanted to win more than any of them. They were already thinking about their excuses and they'd be looking at, at the data to find where they could have got. I didn't worry about that. I just wanted to win. So I had that in touring cars, but I never had a blind belief that I was the best, but I made the most of my opportunity. And and back to what you said, 92, you know, it was an incredibly difficult year with the whole Vic Lee BMW situation. So to pull it off, and nobody ever knows what went into into keeping that that um team going it was a it was a really hard ex difficult thing to do you've spoken to steve we we haven't ever really talked publicly about what was going on behind the scenes but as you can imagine there was a massive chance that that program was going to stall halfway through the year when um vic lee got arrested but you know having kept it going and to ultimately pull off the championship you know it was a hugely emotional point you know it wasn't like any normal season anyone has ever had it was a really controversial one at the end you know there was so much that went on into that year that 
I'll always consider it the highlight of my career because, you know, it's always Tim Harvey, brackets, 1992 British Touring Car Champion. Nobody ever can take that away. And so, yeah, it's the highlight of my career. I won't say it was in all the most enjoyable or that I've had not had better races or done better performances in other cars. But, yeah, overall, 92 was obviously the, the highlight of my career. And you can pick up on any of that if you want it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, I was just going to say your reward for that was to then drive the Renault 19. Which <laughs> yeah, I know. Was, was, which, of course, you took that your legendary centre-bettering yeah. win at, at Donington. But it, it was not um, it was not a great car, was it? Well, I mentioned earlier it was one of my biggest disappointments because, you know, I we'd pulled off this incredible win in 92. Um, I think all I'd ever wanted to be was a BMW factory driver. You know, Steve Soper was, at the time, my teammate. He'd always been my touring car hero, if you like. Um, And, you know, there were times in 92 when I'd matched him and beaten him. And you can only ever judge yourself by your best competitors. Um, You know, the... This is always my sort of uh, dig at John Cleland, isn't it? That he never had a proper teammate, you know, to to really challenge him. And when he did, James Thompson blew him away and he retired after that. But that's another story. But, you know, you can only measure yourself against the best. And, you know, uh, Steve was the best. Um, You know, I also had Record Rydell, Alan Menu, Paul Radisic. I had some great teammates. But the fact that I could race Steve and beat him on occasion and fairly and squarely, and I could see that I was on a level that was genuinely good, I really felt that I wanted to take that career forward with BMW, whether it was in Europe or in Britain. And, you know, I was being offered a BMW contract prior to them then pulling out of the British Touring Car Championship in an argument about rules. So at that point, you know, if you remember, there was the 100 kilo success ballast. They were arguing with Toker and they said, right, that's it. We're out of BTCC. And I'm suddenly sitting there with no no prospect of a drive. When Renault came along um, with a big checkbook and offered me a two-year deal and, you know, everyone, uh, I believe Renault Sport could do the job, it seemed like the right thing to do. So I signed the contract and a month later, BMW sorted out their problems with Toka and came back with Joe and won the championship in 93. Um, while so, I, so basically, you're looking at Joe Vinkelhock sort of in your yes, seat, yes, winning, and, totally. and and you're driving a bit totally. of a, a bit of a shed. Yeah, I mean, the first time, I mean, I remember going. I went from uh, we went for I was at an awards dinner in um, Germany at the end of '92, and it was all you know typical Germanic grey boss suits and no sense of humour and very dour. And uh, but we had our celebration, and then I flew directly to France to go to see Renault Sport, where they built the prototype super touring car for '93, the Renault 19. And uh, the first guy I met was a designer who had long dreadlocks and a Hawaiian T-shirt, and took three-hour lunches with red wine. So it was a very, it was a real culture shock after Germany and uh, BMW. But then when he showed me the car. And I looked at this car, and it was basically a Group N car. It had standard pedal box. You know, it didn't even have a, a, a proper pedal box, or it had a handbrake in it, for God's sake. I said, John Ragnotti like that, didn't he? Yeah, <laughs> I said, why have you got a handbrake? And it's because, he said, because our test driver, John Ragnotti, and he likes to do handbrake turns, because he's a rally driver. And and the car was up on stilts in the air. You know, it wasn't didn't have a low center of gravity. It was quite a narrow car anyway. I mean, I just thought, what have I done? But, you know. And, and of course, the car 
that you had in the UK was to a much better standard than that, but still not not yeah. it's still a, not not anywhere near where it needed to be yeah. to be competitive other than in the rain where yeah it was MCT Metal Composite Technology who were the company that that were running that which was Giles Butterfield and uh, two other guys that were running it from Silverstone in fairness they built a better car um uh, you know the first car they built was better than that prototype but you know it was still nothing <laughs> compared to the likes of a BMW you know it wasn't even close well, what about the Laguna that came along after that, because that that is the car that really did it for Renault in yes. touring cars. Um, but obviously, you, presumably at some point, you had a choice of stay at Renault or go to Volvo. Or, or, or yeah, that- I mean, funny. Just going back to '93 and and Donington in the wet and winning the race, and and obviously that was a combination of the car being soft, the tires, and everything just working on the day. Um, but I will never forget because the car had been hopelessly uncompetitive, and uh, I, I remember coming into the Park Fermi. And Charlie Lamb was on the phone to to BMW, and I heard him. They obviously said, "Well, who won?" And he said, "Well, Tim Harvey won." And 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 they then he had to repeat it. Yes, Tim Harvey in the Renault, and I can remember him repeating it. And I had a little smile on my face that day. Obviously, I wasn't in the BMW, which is where I wanted to be. But you know, yeah, I mean, so the nineteen was done and dusted in a year, and MCT built the first Renault Laguna. Which was a step up, definitely. You know, it was much more on a par, and it was a better car, and and um, uh, you know, we had some success with it. Both Alan and I won races, I think, that year. Um, but it, it, the deal went to Williams, and with that, all sorts of politics came in to play. Um, I'd already had this approach from uh, Tom Walkinshaw for the for the Volvo, which I thought was very much going to be my cup of tea. Um, so I jumped and went went to Volvo but the Volvo season obviously was a little bit disappointing for you that great weekend at Brands Hatch in the wet where you won won both races but otherwise seemed to struggle to match what Ricardo Idel was able to do yeah in fairness you know I think uh, you know despite my two seasons with the Renaults it was my first sort of um, touring car experience in front wheel drive and for whatever reason Ricard just you know, he was better than I was. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll absolutely say that. He was very, very fast. It's Pete Rydell, wasn't he? He, he very was. Fast. He was mega. And um, couldn't start that season. I think that was the problem, yeah, wasn't it? <laughs> he was a lovely guy. I was always better off the line than him. Well, John Clennon likes to claim credit for that as well, doesn't he? Yeah. He, said he used to just have to have to have, have a word in Ricard's ear before the start, and he knew that he wouldn't get off the line properly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Ricard. I don't know what. It, I mean, I remember they, they, they'd taken Ricard and one of the cars up to Silverstone for a day of practicing starts, and they'd measured it all out, and he was doing starts and this and that and the other. And I'd I'd actually ridden over on my bike uh, just to see in the afternoon how it was going. And I jumped in the car in my boat shoes and shorts or whatever it was. And on my very first start, I beat his best time, which was he was a bit knocked about. But anyway, it wasn't all about starting. It was all about results. And and he got the results. Um, You know, I think that was obviously a time period of development for TWR. He was definitely the number one driver in terms of he was Swedish and had all the Volvo links and he, you know, Volvo definitely wanted him to win. And I think he, he did have the best engines. Let's just say that he had the, the development engines as they were coming along and had all the best bits, but I can't take anything away from it. He, he was better than me. And, you know, he had, he had this amazing ability um, where, 
he would always pull out an extra two or three tenths in qualifying. So we do all this testing. Bear in mind, we were testing all the time. You know, there was no testing restrictions. We even had test cars, didn't we? We, we were testing two or three times a week. Truckloads so, of tyres yeah, and all the rest uh, of it. Free tyres, free dampers. It was This was big, big time testing and spending. And we'd go testing and I'd be on the pace with him and we'd, we'd match each other and everything was fine. And I'd think, right, yeah, I've got it this time. Um, we'd go, go to the event and free practice we'd be on a par and then and he'd sort of we'd have a debrief and he would basically sort of say what he felt his target objective was in terms of a time for qualifying and then he'd just go out and do it and it was always two or three tenths quicker you know I would do the best time I could do that I thought was possible and based on everything we'd done testing and all the rest of it I'd do the time and then he'd suddenly just go two or three tenths quicker and I'd, I've ne- I ne- don't know how he ever did it but he did and I guess it was it was frustrating this sort of second half of the super touring era for you because so you had seasons like that you ended up then in Peugeot for a few years which wasn't really the the place to be you had a go at getting a win in the wet thrux and memory so very close yeah um, another lap and I'd have done it but um, but obviously that Peugeot was struggling and didn't always have the the same engines that because they had a different engine spec at times didn't they so well, what they were using in Europe very successfully yeah I mean well the, that that was the biggest sort of waste of money and everyone's time and effort really because msd built the cars in the uk with absolutely no collaboration whatsoever with peugeot sport in france who were building the cars for the german touring car championship which ilo was winning in we had absolutely no crossover of technical information engines i mean for which a defeats the object of super touring really doesn't it yeah, yeah. the whole point was it was the same well spec. it was I mean, there was exactly the same rules and peugeot france would not share anything with peugeot uk and you just think for a manufacturer to have produced what at the time was uh, arguably the best car in Germany, not to share that with their out of Anglo Anglo Frank Franco bad relations just seems absolutely bizarre. Um, also, just ahead of their times in these days of Brexit. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was a frustrating. I mean, for me, the frustration was that I'd actually won with every manufacturer I'd been with, but never won with Peugeot. So that was a, a frustration. But you know, it was three years of of good hard racing. You know, it was fun with Patrick. It was it was good with um, Paul Radisich. You know, we we did the best we possibly could with the budget we had. We 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 didn't have the money. We ah. Uh, total bill was was less than the french spent on engines you know well, it was going completely crazy yes. in the last few years of super touring yeah the money that's been spent like pro drive for the ford things in the last couple of years yeah it was insane wasn't it well it was mental yeah. such a shame because i thought it was actually one of the better looking cars i think yeah. it did look quite cool yeah but i try and play on toka or toka 2 and it was a nightmare on that yeah. so i have a huge amount of sympathy for you oh it's it really is this terrible <laughs> yeah people used to come up to me and say i've tried to use your car on toka 2 and it, it just won't stay yeah. on the track yeah that and the ford no don't bother yeah <laughs> but you weren't alone in not winning with peugeot because peugeot never they, they never got no. it did they never got that win no got closest but uh no i mean you know it was everybody put a lot of hard work into that you know we we with the resources we had everyone put a lot of hard work in you know whether it's msd persia uk everybody drivers teams everyone worked hard now just thinking about it patrick has actually got one hasn't he he's go, got two he's got we, two yeah we, two yeah, two, yeah, two, yeah, two four or sixes yeah. so when are you gonna buy a get a hold of a no oh, i know you got your formula four but when you've you know, done the single seat thing. What about getting a getting a super tour or, or maybe an RS five hundred? 
Yeah, well, unfortunately, I completely missed the boat on all of my old cars. You know, there's my Labatt's M3, the E31 is running around. My Sierra Cosworth's running around. Patrick's got one of my Peugeots. So they're all out there, actually, and I don't own any of them. But there are times when I could have had them because, for example, my Labatt's um, RS500, which is probably the one out of all of them I would like to own, um, that after the, we finished the 1990 season, obviously that was the end of Group A, Lawrence Bristow actually owned the car. He was my teammate. He owned that car and his own one. And he took the two cars away and put them in his multiple garages down at Cranley. Um, he lived on the estate in Cranley and, uh, and put, the, uh, put the cars in the garage there. And, uh, and he'd have an Andy Rouse mechanic come down every six months and fire the cars up and run them up and everything. He then converted his car into a Thunder Saloon car. But my car stayed absolutely as it was, as it finished, sitting on the same tyres, same engine in it, as it finished the last race at Silverstone in 1990. And that car went through a series of, of owners. And at times, I actually could have bought it for as little as 22 grand, believe it or not. Um, but um, and, and it was a totally original car, even when it resurfaced a few years later. And you, of course, you raced it, didn't you? That is the one you raced. So go and I'll tell the story about the Patrick Watson part in before you went out. Oh, the tyres. Yeah, yeah. Because because Patrick's <laughs> in the four hundred six and Tim is in the RS five hundred, and uh, Silverstone Classic. Silverstone Classic. I think he said to you something like, "Don't get in the way," because he knew that you were going to come blasting past him on the yeah. power. Yeah. Don't get in the way, and you, and you just sort of leaned over and said cold tires cops and i couldn't believe it i was at lap two yeah comes into cops leaves the back end and patrick sticks it in the wall straight (laughs) off i mean that car then was was in exactly the same state still had the same engine in that it had in 1990 and when we went out in qualifying i i I was on the front row wasn't i and that's what wound patrick up um and but the engine was overheating and i said to the owner and i said look you know this engine's overheating you know i'm not sure it's gonna last and i don't want to damage this car because it's so original and he said oh don't worry about it I'll, I'll be getting a new engine anyway and anyway so it did overheat in the race but yeah i said to patrick in park Ferme when he said that, i said just watch the cold tires patrick and sure enough he flew off <laughs> and i guess it's fair to say that after after you left persia your kind of btcc career although it did sort of limp on Completely different times. People, the, the yeah. professional drivers had gone. Certainly, one Super Touring ended at the end of yeah. two thousand. You know, suddenly you had two thousand and one. Totally different landscape. So you would have been having to, I guess, find budget pretty much to. Yeah, I mean, there, there were no professional drives going. Um, you know, and at that point, I certainly wasn't about to um, uh, go and start looking for sponsors to go racing. I felt like I'd had the best of my touring car career. Um, I was asked to go and help out with um, the JSM Alpha 147 um, on a sort of management type uh, uh, part. And that was a difficult program, putting that together. And the budget wasn't there and the car wasn't really very reliable. But um, I jumped in it at Alton Park and got a little result for that. Got it on the podium, which was nice. And in actual fact, that was that that was the reason that um i got asked to drive the the halfords 406 in 2002 but that was no great shakes either really. well to be honest none of the cars in those <laughs> no. first years if you didn't have a voxel astra coupe yeah you were kind of yeah. done Buried. for really weren't <laughs> you? Yeah. It, it was a pretty horrible time for the championship yeah. wasn't it particularly yeah. 2001 where it's yeah. just yeah it just it's the classic thing it's just it's sort of boom and bust isn't yes. it that's yeah it, it came down to earth with such a bad bump mm. that was and that was really the end of uh you know that 
those halcyon days of, of super touring and everything else as the championship started to refine its feet and find a formula that actually worked, whether it was BTC, Super 2000 or ultimately NGTC. Yeah, certainly very much um, unrecognisable from where it's got to again now, although yeah. obviously still where it is now is very different to the super touring uh, touring days, I guess, in terms of, again... Totally so different. Every budgets, driver on the grid is British. There's no international flavour to Still it. Still have the national anthem though, the podium, which quite just, right. Oh, gets me every time. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You know, never been tempted to try and make a comeback into BTCC. Uh, I've been asked lots of times, but you know, there's two two elements to that. A, what have I got to prove? B, I've already admitted that I don't like front-wheel drive. Uh, C, I've seen the efforts of Alan Menu and Fabrizio Giovinardi to come back. So you put them all together and the answer's no, I wouldn't put myself in that you, position. You could go in and have a bit of a race with Mark Blundell. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, actually, I think that, that does pick up on a, on a good point, though, which although we do say the Super Touring is the greatest year, and I do, do think that it was, I think that the top, guys and NGTC now you can't just dip in and beat them like, no 100% you know, Giovinardi no. and Menu really really struggled I mean Gio yeah. couldn't really match Matt Jackson in the no. car um, it's specialist you know, isn't it you see this in championships results. like this um, yeah absolutely you know, it's not it's not something that well look at Dan Camish you know he's been brilliant in everything he's done he's dominated Porsches and he's I'll be honest I was expecting a bit more from him and I think that, that shows you just how hard it is to come in and and and, and th- do it in British Touring Cup. I think it is, but for lots of different reasons. Uh, in fairness to Dan, he's actually been fast in the car all the time. His problems in his first year were putting together the whole race weekend, dealing with the the, the maelstrom of of BTCC racing, the vagaries of reverse grid success, ballast, and option tires. But actually, from the moment he got in the car, he's been fast. He's now starting to put the whole weekend together, which is a different thing. But actually, what what happened with Alan and uh, with Fabrizio is they weren't even fast, and uh, you know when they first jumped in it, and and that is because those top guys, you know, the top ten, twelve, fifteen, even guys on on the grid are experts at those cars, and they aren't. The NGTC car is not a conventional car. It doesn't give you the same uh, feedback and senses as any of the sort of previous cars, Super Touring or or um, S2000 cars did. They're just different. You know, the whole suspension system is different. And the experts who are used to it and feel and know how it feels and, and can go with it can get a time out of it. But if you're a, a, a pure driver from the past, you can't. Well, and, and also with the setup, because uh, I remember in the first years of NGTC, talking to the experienced drivers that had done previous v- yeah. versions, saying that, that even s- setup changes yeah. have don't have the effect that no. you expect. So you have to almost learn a new subcategory of setup to get the best out of an NGTC car. Yeah, so- you cannot, as a driver, engineer uh, an NGTC car the way you would have done conventionally with uh, with previous cars. You know, for example, you, you might want to you know know what a bit of roll bar adjustment does, or um, C of G uh, or roll center adjustment might make on a conventional car. It might do completely the opposite on an NGTC car. Uh, but obviously, you, you still continue to to enjoy racing. Porsche Carrera Cup, you're very successful, and you won that a couple of a couple of times. You mentioned racing against some of the the younger guys. Some very serious drivers turned up in that, so uh, yeah, show, it was, showed you could still do it. It was a great championship. You know, it was back in a powerful rear wheel drive car. You know, no traction or ABS or anything like that. It was it was a car I immediately clicked with the first time I ever drove it. Loved it, um, and I was. 
you know, it was great that I have this little second career in Carrera Cup in fabulous cars um, against some really good young guys. And there was all the, always this sort of battle of, you know, I was the, if you like, the older established former touring car champion up against the young guys. And it was a nice little mix. It was a nice dynamic mix. And, you know, I had an, and completely pure racing. There was no fabrication to any of it. Often made sometimes for quite boring races, I agree. But uh, by a similar token, as a driver uh, appreciating the purity of racing, it was a fabulous formula and I, I really enjoyed it. And having that mix of some experienced guys and the up-and-comers was really has been really helpful for some of those young guys because Porsche have you know picked up drivers through that. I, mean, I know they've got the scholarship now, but even before that, you know, if you proved yourself at one of the now, it's usually the British or German yeah. career cars, isn't it? Yeah, you know, the drivers that have gone on to have careers with Porsche, so it's, yeah. been, it's been quite a good. It's been quite a good. The races aren't the most exciting on the Toka package, but I think they probably are the purest. Yeah, definitely, um, and and fastest as well on the Toka. Yes, package. that's true. Yeah, yeah the, the cars are quick. They sound good too. Well, they'd sound better if we took the silencers off and we could run them like Super Cup cars. <laughs> Go but, to historic so. meeting. That's where all the loud stuff <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and obviously, we, we mentioned that you do a lot of stuff off track. You've been heavily involved in the BRDC with, with young drivers. You've done some, some driver management at times in the past as well. So it's very much an, an area of interest here. I guess, is, is that what, why do you do that? Is that about the classic giving something back or is it just you know most sport, you can help? It's something I think you throughout, can... throughout my professional career i've always been commercially aware you know um in terms of sponsors and doing deals and getting the best out of opportunities and you know appreciating the media in fact the first the reason i got the itv commentary job was when i stepped out of the car at the end of 2002 i got a phone call from itv from uh, the producer saying look you've always had plenty to say for yourself when we stick a camera and a microphone under your face would you have you ever considered doing commentary and that led on to that but i've always been media aware if you like and you know obviously through the whole super touring thing we use the media if you like to create interest and awareness and 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 everything else so i've really just been combining all those things i was already doing in sometimes more visible ways but you know i've always done sponsorship acquisition i've i've been involved with various sponsorship deals and driver deals and team deals and brokering things behind the scenes and and obviously i ran the superstars program for 11 years up until the end of last year so that was a big commitment yes it was putting something back um i've been asked at various times if i would stand to be a director of the brdc and i've always said no which is actually because as a, a child my father was um chairman of the jaguar drivers club and it nearly killed him because he was taking phone calls every night from disgruntled members about one subject or another and he you know he was the sort of gentleman that tried to please everyone all the time and i sort of made a a, a a commitment to myself that I'd never put myself in that position of sort of being in between friends and having to make decisions. And so for me, the Superstars program was my way of putting something back in, but without being a director of, of the comp- of, of the BRDC. And I think it's worth saying, if you don't mind me saying while you're here, Tim, like that's been a really proactive, like you've been really involved and it's not, so, it's a little bit like with some of the stuff that Derek Warwick's done with the single seater drivers. Yeah. You, know, you don't often hear about it, but there are an awful lot of drivers who have benefited from your experience and help, and yeah, you know, I think yeah. that's it's, it's probably you know we should we should say that that um, thank you. The, the, the BRDC yeah. in the past has had a bit of a sort of stuffy type of reputation, but I really think that that's changed a lot over the last few years, and I think you, Derek, 
Ian Titchmarsh, you know, because of your involvement with Young Drives and all the rest of it, has has gone a long way to to, yeah. to changing that. Well, you've sat on the Rising Star Scouts yes, yeah, uh, we've done uh, that, panel, yeah. you know, so you know at an early stage, a very early stage of drivers' careers, you know, the BRDC is taking an interest. Um, people would often come up to me and say, "Well, how, how does someone get, uh, you know, apply to be a Rising Star or become a superstar?" And I said. You really don't need to because if they're doing anything or they're any good, we already know about. Yeah, them. be good, win. We already know, <laughs> you know, and and, yeah. they're, and they're sometimes surprised that that the BRDC, that sort of um, establishment that people think is behind closed doors and it's blazers and an old boys thing, they're sometimes surprised that we know what's going on in Ginetta Juniors and Formula Four, F four, and all the rest of it. But of course we do, and yeah, I mean, you know, over the years, the number of deals and introductions and things that the BRDC has done either through Rising Stars or through myself at Superstars is is in, incalculable and there are many many drivers who have their professional careers now to thank the BRDC for in a large way. It's hugely beneficial because particularly in more recent times it's become more and more and more difficult to raise the the required money. I mean everybody knows how much it is for single seaters but even in a lot of other categories to to just prove yourself and make your way and get yourself into a position mm. where you could grab the attention to get a professional drive is yeah. is so difficult now the sums of money involved can be yeah and, and the one thing the BRC can't actually do is fund these guys racing but it can help them to find it, a way to it, fund themselves it can help them to make the most of their opportunities and it can create opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have had and it and it can broker deals for at a far better rate than they might have got if they just uh, rocked up at the team um, and we've done all of those, all of the above over the years for, for many people. You are best known now for BTCC. We've talked a little bit about how it is now. And do you still get the same enjoyment out of the championship? It's, it's so different. So if you look at Super Touring, it was a very, it was kind of a pure thing, wasn't it? It turned into a spending war, which basically all motorsport does if you leave it un, unchecked, doesn't it? But now it's, the BTCC is a very, very different environment. It's kind of an entertainment product. It's very popular. There's the, the argument about whether it's pure or a little bit contrived. I mean, I was, I always sort of think that although no matter what goes on with the rules and performance balancing and that kind of thing, it is still drivers in cars getting the best out of them. When you're going to wheel to wheel, that kind of thing, that that's still the essence yeah. of racing, isn't it? Uh, and the truth, you bring up a lot of things there, Ed. And, and the truth is, yes, I'm every bit as passionate about it. I'm every bit as excited about it. And I sit down and watch every race or commentate on every race with. Uh, an air of expectation and excitement and you know I'm putting myself when I'm watching the drivers and seeing what's happening I'm putting myself in their position in the car thinking what would I be doing what would I be aware of what would I thinking of in this situation there's a massive amount going on as as we've said with reverse grid success ballast option tires you know the the thing you see on the grid is drivers staring at a piece of paper now it's not a printout of their fastest lap against someone else's or anything else it's actually a print out of the grid with who's got what weights and what tires on because they're trying to work out what they're racing against because the guy they were racing equally against in the last race may have a big advantage in this race or a big disadvantage so you have to know what's going on um and you know and i'm trying to bring that across as well to the viewer you know to explain why not every race is the same um but i totally appreciate the uh, uh the driver's point of view and you know, the reality is that the best always come through. I think the situation last year where we had 17 different winners was too many because in any championship that 
it brings in an element of really are there really 17 it guys make, it that, makes it too amorphous as well too yeah. hard to follow the the, st- and yeah. the, the title decider when yeah. you had your title contender sort of 17th and 21st in a grid or whatever yeah, it was that shouldn't happen y- you need them nearer nearer to the front and you know uh, and the best should be rewarded whether that's drivers teams combination uh, and, and we're seeing that this year um that's another thing we can talk about but yes i think uh fundamentally the btcc is a product of its time it absolutely delivers what is wanted today and i'm every bit as excited about it that's the challenge isn't it it's balancing up the need to be a little bit contrived in areas or to artificially close things up and and the fact that you do want kind of pure racing but i guess you need it don't you i mean kev you've got you've got some strong opinions on this i'm gonna ask you to get yourself into trouble now uh, I was re- trying to stay silent then. Um, I know. That's why you were This is a rare interview, Ken. My view on it has changed a bit. I mean, when I came in to cover the championship in 2011, I'm a bit of a, I'm a, bit of a purist. I don't really care if the best driver car combination disappears into the distance because that's what sport is to me. I, yeah, if Usain Bolt wins every 100-meter race and he's the best person in the world, then that's that's fine. But that's, that's not what British Touring Cars is. It's not what it sells itself as. And I think that it's... Uh, I think that it has done a very good job of lots of people who are interested. Lots of people can win. I think last year it was too many, too many race winners. And I think a British Touring Car race win means less now than it used to. But I think the right people end up winning the championship. You know, if you yes. reel, reel off the names, you know, I did a piece at the end of last year, effectively defending Colin Turkington because people thought, well, he only won one race. Yeah. I was like, yeah, but he went into almost every meeting with ballast yeah, yeah. the one series was usually one of the slowest through the speed traps yeah. i think it was an absolutely remarkable campaign yeah. to be able to win the championship with the handicaps he had to level it off um so in a way i think the british Touring car championship last year tick tick the boxes of lots of winners but we got the right champion so mm. i kind of my, my only problem is when some people try and sell it as oh you know it's pure racing and it's all mm. the same and this person's better than that person well you've got to dig and Tim, I know you do because you're in the paddock all the time. And if you're there, you're hearing, oh, such and such got this boost, such and got this tyre mm. ballast. You can work it out, but it's not always obvious who's doing the best job on TV. No, it's not. And, and what the teams get upset about is if they put an awful lot of work into into doing a good job and then they're hobbled by, if you like, the regulations or boost or circumstance or what have you. And a guy who hasn't really put much effort in, who's bought a, an old car and is running it just for a bit of fun, then wins a race and makes them and look silly to their sponsors. That's when it gets difficult. Yeah. Well, I remember having a chat with uh, one of the BTCC designers who's no longer there. And he showed me the, uh, he showed me some sort of drawings and um, CAD stuff on what he would do to the car he was running and he had it all worked out it's like we reckon this will get us somewhere between a tenth and a tenth and half a lap but it's going to cost x amount of pounds so what's the point because after the first meeting we do it we'll just get turned down a little bit on the boost and then we're back to where we are now so we might as well just leave the car as it is i mean in fairness Um, to toka the boost adjustments are very few and far between um you know now we're arguing about aero equivalency about front and rear wheel drive comparisons we're arguing about other things um yes there are still some elements that are questionable in terms of straight line speed and what have you. But the reality is that Toker are monitoring that with the loggers in every car and analysing it to death. Um, so, uh, and the days when perhaps Alan was uh, adjusting or playing with his change, his chess set have changed. Um, and, and I do think it is much purer competition now. Um, and the best are coming forward and we're seeing that with the BMW. Yeah, you, you also got to say the... 
the, the direction is proven because it wasn't so long ago if you look early in the century when I covered BTCC in 2005 and I think the season started with 14 odd cars it was a slightly motley selection of uh, machinery so it was really on its knees and obviously Alan Gower went away and he, he'd come back by that time and finding a direction for it you know you've and the other the other positive thing is I think the the standout drivers you could take uh, Colin Turkington or something rash on any of these guys could have held their own in the Super Touring era if no they were question. if they were twenty years younger or whatever yeah there's no doubt about that's that's the the sort of key thing that if that's yeah. lost maybe maybe some individual race wins are a bit distorted but the, the guys who are the the sort of top three four in the championship and normally are there. Definitely. They're, they're all world-class drivers, really world-class drivers. Uh, I mean, the thing that people forget is it's it's actually really hard still to win a, a BTCC race based on pure performance because out of the three races, the third race is a reverse grid. Anything up to 12 cars reversed. Now, in that 12 cars, virtually everybody can win a race off the front given that they're then the lightest car and everyone actually is heavier behind them so the third race is by far and away the easiest one to win no question the first two you're also don't forget you've still got the the option tire and in one of those races the option tire might actually not be the one that is the, the good one for the weekend so sometimes you've only got one chance out of three to win a race I actually think the third race should score fewer points, but that's perhaps a like, for, for, for that very for those very reasons. Actually, I think I always think of races one and two as the proper ones. Mm. Who's on it this weekend? And then race three, mm. you know, if one of the Matt Neal's great at this, so mm. if he's having a slightly dodgy weekend, he's not quite at the front. He's mm. brilliant at getting into that eighth to twelfth yes. slot. If he's on the front front or second row, you think Matt's going to win this. I mean, yeah. he'd have won at Alton Park, hadn't yeah. unfortunately not been almost put in the wall, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's very good at doing those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, he is. He is. And and that's how you that's how you recover a bad weekend is understanding that what you've got to do in race two. Uh, but you know, had he say prior to the racing, picked the wrong tire for race two, he'd have never got to that position to then True. be in the position for race three. And that's how the vagaries of BTC can play out. I suppose it's nice to have Matt Neal still doing well sometimes. Makes you do that. Yeah, I could still I could still do a job. Obviously, one of your contemporaries only a few years younger than yeah, you. Yeah, well, he's got the most races of anyone in BTCC now. And, uh, he's all the way back to 91, he goes. Yeah, he's, he done really, more, so. he's done more than half. I think he might be pro- approaching two-thirds of all British tournament car yeah. races that <laughs> yeah. ever happened. Yeah. But, of course, now they're doing 30 races a year. You know, yeah, you think skewed, back yeah. where we started in 87. I think there were 12 races in a season. And they're now doing 30. Yeah, very, very, uh, very different world. Well, we've we've gone on plenty, so it's been <laughs> fascinating to hear you about your career and also some of your thoughts on uh, thoughts on on today. Uh, so, thank you very much. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Uh, well, do check out autosport.com for all the latest on the world of F1 and the rest of the world of motorsport. There's obviously British touring car content there as well. Autosport magazine's out every Thursday. Check out sister titles, motorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly, and Motorsport News out every Wednesday. And also, if you enjoy this podcast and you've not already subscribed, please do subscribe. It's free. You can find it on all sorts of uh, podcast suppliers out every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast.
music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.